Thank you. Chris, are my elbows ashy? Are they a little bit? Dry skin, man. I lathered these up already with Vaseline already. See, it was, I just got to ask because sometimes people don't say nothing. And if I go back and watch the replay just to see why, I was like, man, my elbows look like, like I was walking in powdered donuts this morning. Like I was making donuts this morning. Like nobody said nothing. Tell me your elbows ashy, Pastor Kurt. And I'll tell you, your elbows are too. And we'll both be honest with each other. If you were to ask a vast majority of Christians in America, at least today, why the world is the way that it is, the rebellion in Genesis 3 would be the most common response. All right? It would be the most common. Most of us would say what happened in the fall with Adam and Eve is why the world is the way that it is. Yes, ma'am. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies. So if they become ashy again, then you know it's the enemy. Because you all have seen me do it. This is the second time I've done that this morning. If you're a guest today, welcome to Solid Rock Church. This is just how we... We don't have no cut cards. We just are who we are. You can walk up, give lotion, give whatever it is. This is wonderful. Oh, wow. Oh, okay, yeah, this is for real right here. I need some of this in my life. Thank you. Man, I feel good. I feel oil or something. I feel like I can. All right. My wife is excited. She's, she's encouraged by that, Joyce. So if you, were, if you were to ask the majority of Christians in America why the world is the way that it is, they would say Genesis 3. They would say Genesis 3, Adam and Eve bit from the fruit, sin came into the world. That would be the majority of what they would say. And a lot of that answer, while it's true, it's incomplete, a lot of that answer comes more from the Reformation. It comes as a result of the Reformation, a, a, a movement of proper theology that happened in the 16th century pushing back against the theology of the Catholic Church. But it would be true, but it would be incomplete. If you were to ask a, a Jew from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus why the world is the way that it is, they would say Genesis 3, Genesis 6, and Genesis 11. They would say there were three rebellions that caused the world to become what it is. Now, in literary terms, Genesis 1 through 11 is called the prologue. That's in sort of literary terms. They... You call it the prologue, and a prologue simply means it's a preface or introduction to a literary work, and it means an introductory or preceding event or development. So Genesis 1 and 11 is set in the Bible by God to be an introduction 
of why the world is the way that it is. It's not just Genesis 3, but you have to include Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. Now, we've looked at the first two rebellions pretty closely. Today, we examine the third. What happened at the Tower of Babel set in motion the second greatest theme in the Bible just after God interceding or interacting with humanity. What happened in Babel set many things in motion and explains a vast majority of why the Bible is what it is from Genesis 12 until the end of Revelation. Before we see what that is, let's recap where we are on the storyline. So let's the Fuwayak. Don't forget what you already know. It's an acronym I made up. Don't take it, please. I already got ashy elbows. I need that. When Genesis was written, it was written for the Jews. When it was written, there were already competing narratives about how the world came to be via other religions. Many of you, if you know your Bibles, you know that, that as Israel became a great multitude, a lot of people, they were enslaved for 400 years, and they were taught Egyptian theology. So their understanding of the world would have been largely influenced by the Egyptian understanding of the world. So there were narratives that were already out there that were going as the narrative of why the world is the way that it is. But God waited to write his version, and in the Bible is a clarification that is competing with the other religions for what happened in the garden, the flood, the, the tower, and why the Jews are the uniquely the people of God and why Jesus came and so forth. The Bible is God's competing clarification of reality. It's not one of many truths. It's clarifying what is actually true. In these next two weeks, today and next week, it'll become clearer why God waited to write his narrative. Now, a few weeks ago, we ended in Genesis 9, seeing that even after, after the flood, humanity, through Noah and his family, were given a second chance. We saw that. Ham, one of Noah's sons, sees his father's nakedness, and when Noah finds out, he curses Ham's son, Canaan. Just before that, we saw angels rebelling against God, creating a hybrid race of divine and human beings, as well as angels teaching humanity divination, astrology, weaponry. And all these things culminated in causing the flood to take place. God felt like the sins of the world are so great, I must destroy nearly everyone. Before that, we saw what happened in the Garden of Eden, how it all began, where Adam and Eve were deceived, or tempted at least. They were tempted. Eve was not deceived by the serpent. She was tempted. Eve was deceived by herself. It's her own desires. And we see this in Genesis 3.6. And we see that because of that, the world is forever changed. So initially, the answer to why is the world the way that it is does point at Genesis 3, but it's incomplete. We've looked at all of those closely. When we get to Genesis 11, there's something you must understand that 
when Noah and his four sons and their wives repopulated humanity, stories about what happened before all these people were in the world were passed down to them. They were told. And we know this because there are a variety of competing narratives from other religions, particularly those in the Mesopotamian region of that world, that had their own origin stories. Stories were passed down to warn against disobedience. But those stories can also tempt people to want what they shouldn't have. So keep this in mind. The people at the Tower of Babel, humanity as it was, is well aware of what happened in the garden and what happened in the flood. And also keep in mind that Satan was not destroyed in the flood. Only certain supernatural beings that rebelled by marrying women and teaching humanity things that not intended for them and how to worship other gods, they were, they were punished by God. But Satan is still active. There are cosmic powers of evil still active. God didn't destroy all of them. And also remember that God is intentional. Every detail matters. Some more than others, but every detail matters. With that being said, let's jump in. Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1, and I quote. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bit bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and the tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, or Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Remember last week when Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus was not ignoring this narrative. Everything that happened at the cross and the resurrection is dealing with everything that we're hearing up to this point. If this were a movie, many of us would probably self-righteously Shake our heads. Are you serious again? They're doing this again? And this would be rebelling against God. Now, many of you, like me, I, you know, I'm, I used to be a TV yeller or a movie yeller. If I watched a movie, particularly a horror flick, and you went that way, 
when the road out was that way, I used to be like, you idiot, what are you doing? And then when they'd be caught, I'd be like, you deserve to die. I used to be like that. Some of you were like that. I don't know which part, but some of you were like that. You can read these stories. A lot of us read these. We read these stories about the Pharisees. We read these stories about the repeated sins of humanity, and we think, are you serious? Didn't you hear that God destroyed the whole world? And now you're going to rebel against them again? It's easy to read these stories and be like, these people are tripping until we realize we read these same stories and sin against God over and over and over and over again. So what is the rebellion here? What is the actual rebellion? Let's look at verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city in the tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, many would argue that the building of the tower is the main offense here. That the building is to make God or the gods do their bidding. And what they did was that by creating this structure, it's called a tower, but probably what they mean is more like a ziggurat, which was a tall pyramid with a temple on top. And then that structure, the idea was to make the god or the gods come down and bless them because they built this temple. But they assumed that the gods needed humanity. The gods needed rest. They needed food. They needed sacrifices. And so the idea was, let's build this temple, this pyramid with a temple on top called a ziggurat, and let's have the gods come down be impressed with what we did, and then bless us. Essentially, it was expecting that God will come down and give them provision and basically do their bidding and serve them. That's what most people would say is the main offense of this. And I think that's a fair understanding for the concern for this narrative. I think it's across the boardwalk people would agree with this. But I do think there's a little more going on here than just the building of a temple at the top of a pyramid to bring gods down, mainly because the Tower of Babel is a manifestation of a deeper supernatural reality. There are three components to this story. There's the circumstance, which is in verses 5 and 6. It's just that the narrator describes there's one language. They use the same words. That's interesting. They use the same words, one language. They're in the land of Shinar, and they start burning bricks and bitumen. That's sort of the circumstance. Then there's the rebellion, and then there's the response from God. We're going to focus on the rebellion and the response this morning because that's where the action is. The circumstance is just ashy elbows. Let's start with the rebellion one more time. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So within that one verse, we see the how, the what, and the why of the rebellion. And they start off with the how. Let's build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Now, many of us, when we hear the word heaven, we're triggered to think where God is. Right? That's not how they communicated. 
Just like we say oceans, the Bible calls it seas or the deep. For them, heavens was not trying to go to a place where God is. For them, heavens just meant the sky. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, when it says God separated the the heavens, he created the heavens, it just means the sky. All they were trying to do was build a tall tower, much like we see today in New York City and Chicago. They wanted to build a skyscraper. It wasn't that they were trying to go to heaven. They were trying to bring God down. They wanted him to come down. So heavens just means they wanted to build a tall building. The real issue is the what? They say, let us make a name for ourselves. Now, while there is no specific command up to this point that we see from God that making a name for yourself is a sin, we have to see this and view this statement in light of Genesis 4.26. If you remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, they're taken out of the garden, and then Cain kills his brother Abel, and then humanity starts to increase. Genesis 4.26 tells us this. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we have no idea what the circumstances were that led to that, but we know that people began to call on the name of the Lord. They wanted to make the Lord's name great. They wanted to acknowledge who the Lord is, so they're calling on the name of the Lord. They're worshiping him. So when they say, let us make a name for ourselves, they're saying, we're not calling on the name of the Lord. We're not worshiping the God that we've heard about from our ancestors. We're not calling on the God who created the garden, the God who destroyed the world in rebellion. We're not calling, we're not making, we're making a name for ourselves. That's a bold statement in light of what you're aware of. I mean, think about it. If someone told you, hey, I'm going on vacation to a particular region of the world. And someone said, fam, do you know that a whole bunch of people got murdered over there right in the village you're going to? And they said, anybody that comes gets murdered? Only a fool would still go. If you tell me that, that's it. How do I, excuse me, I'm sorry, how do I get my ticket back? You just wouldn't do it. Why? Because you don't want to put yourself in a situation where your life is in danger when you have the foreknowledge to know, wow, this is pretty serious. So you're going to make a name for yourself after knowing that the God that you're ignoring destroyed the whole world? This is a new kind of arrogance. That's the what. And then here's the why. Here's why they did it lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Here is the biggest aspect of the rebellion. The language here is similar to what God said to both Adam when he created the world and then Noah when he recreated the world through humanity. Here's what Genesis 1.28 says. This is what God said to Adam in the beginning when he created the world. He said, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
So here's God's desire. Be fruitful. Multiply the earth and fill it. Want people everywhere. After the flood, in what we call, theologically speaking, the Noahic covenant, God's covenant with Noah, Genesis 9-1, identical language. Here's what God says to Noah. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, all right, let's do this again. Let's do this again. Noah and this, they all know we were spared by God. All eight of the people, Noah, his three sons, and their wives all know we were spared by God. We were in the ark and looked out the window and saw water higher than mountains. So God says, all right, let's do this again. Same deal. The only thing he adds is that if anyone kills someone, then they're going to be killed, essentially. Same thing. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The idea of multiplying and filling the earth is that there would be image bearers calling on the name of the Lord everywhere. The Lord didn't create the world so you could stay in this one section. He created it so that you could go everywhere and imitate him in the world. Be an image bearer. You're made in his image. But instead, at Babel, they don't want to go everywhere and obey God. They want to stay where they are and obey themselves. And they acknowledge this. Listen to their voices. Remember, they got one language, one voice, essentially. Listen to the language. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Why would they say that? Why would you say, let's just make a city and let's do that? Make a name for ourselves. Okay, that's not in and of itself a big deal. I mean, we see nothing but people, Cain and all these people, making cities and naming them after their children. Right? That's not the worst thing in the world. But why do you add, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth? Because that's language that they know that God wants them to do. And so they're building a tower is the circumstance that reveals a heart that's so hard towards God that even though he destroyed the world, we're going to try our chances with him again. We're not afraid. We're not afraid. So they don't mind. And God acknowledges this. This is a direct violation of God's word. God acknowledges this and what he says. The circumstance, the rebellion, and the response all follow the same pattern of the other two rebellions. Genesis 3, the garden rebellion, right? Supernatural being deceives Adam and Eve into sin. The issue there was being like God, deciding what good and evil is, right? So humanity would have the knowledge of God instead of knowledge from God. And there it is. So God removes humanity from the garden, and then it escalates. In Genesis 6, supernatural beings leave heaven to have sex with women on earth and create a hybrid species, half divine, half human beings. And they teach them divination, astrology, stars, usage of plants and weaponry that God hadn't 
decided that they should have. The issue here in, in, the, in the flood was gaining further knowledge that leads to worshiping other gods, essentially deciding it is good to worship the stars and evil to worship God alone. So God removes humanity from the world in a flood, and it escalates. In Genesis 11, humanity building a tower up in the sky wanting to make a name for themselves, not wanting to go out to the world. And the issue here is them determining their own purpose and wanting God to submit to them instead of the other way around. It sounds crazy until we stop and think we want God to submit to our purposes too instead of the other way around. Most of our offenses towards God are things that we thought he was going to do or things that we think he should do that he hasn't done, and we're offended. The majority of it is you're not doing what I wanted you to do, and so we're offended at God. Some of us get so offended we actually walk away from the faith. Some of us get offended and decide I'm going to pursue immaturity. Let's give in to sin. Because we're offended that God is not doing what we want him to do. Do not disconnect yourself from the Tower of Babel because you are there. You have been there. We all hate when God does not submit to what we think he should do. We're not that much different. The unifying theme in each rebellion is this. You'll be like God. You'll be like God. You got his knowledge and wisdom. You got it. It's demigods, it's children. You learn all this stuff about stars and stuff that you never would have known about. You'll be like God. There was a unified conceptual rebellion from humanity. There's similarities. But there's also a lot of differences in this rebellion. Here are some of the differences. We see no clear mention of supernatural beings' involvement in this rebellion. We don't see any clear mention. So how does this become the basis for the second greatest storyline in a supernatural narrative when there's no clear mention of supernatural beings taking part in rebellion. What's also different here is the sin here is done in light of the knowledge of God's wrath. Adam and Eve didn't know anything about God's wrath. They didn't know anything about it. They were warned that this is going to happen. You're going to die if this happens, if you bite from this fruit, but they didn't know. But this sin is in knowledge of the consequences of disobeying God. This is a different kind of arrogance. The majority of this scene is also about God and his perspective on mankind's rebellion. God was in the backdrop of what happened in Genesis 3, and he showed up. Adam, where are you? As if he doesn't know. But in this scene, the majority of this scene is God's perspective and his response to their rebellion. So God is the supernatural being in this story, and he responds in two ways 
that set in motion spiritual warfare as we know it. Let's read from verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Remember, God's intentional. Listen to what his concern is. First thing he says, besides going down, he says they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning. Whenever God speaks, it's really important. And the first thing he's worried about, concerned about, acknowledges, is they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So here's a structure to God's response. There's the concern, verses 5 and 6, the conclusion, 7 and 8, and then the consequence. The concern is intentional. Humanity is one people. They have one language. They use the same words. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible. This is the statement from God about the negative effects of unity. There are negative effects of unity. You can be unified in your rebellion against God. Unity is a beautiful thing. It's biblical until you're unified against God. We see this all the time in our culture. Paul warns about not letting this happen in the church. When Paul warns about divisions and rivalries, and he's saying, don't let people be unified in sinful ways in your church. He says, have nothing to do with them. Because negative unity will destroy what God has built. Now, when God says that nothing they propose to do will be impossible, he doesn't mean they're unstoppable because God can stop them. What God is saying is because they speak one language and they're this unified, anything they think about, they'll try it. They'll try it. They can think of a bunch of stuff and they won't think anything's impossible. Because if everyone's unified, everyone can communicate, everyone understands each other, it's like we all have one mind, one voice. God's saying they won't have any barriers to what they try to do. They will attempt anything because they're essentially, how we would say today, on the same page. I mean, think about it. When you're on the same page with people, things just work right, right? You're on the same page. Your friends, you're on the same page. Your church, you're on the same page. Your group, y'all just on the same page. You know, as Christians, there's nothing like having a group of people. Everyone's committed. Everyone's focused on honoring the Lord. People reading scriptures, memorizing, doing this. You're encouraging each other. There's nothing like it. This is why in Acts 2, 42 through 47, when it was like they all came together, right? 
They broke bread. They did the prayers. They listened to preaching, and they shared with whatever anyone had. And they said the people were amazed at their unity because when you're unified and you're on the same page, you get things done, you're clicking. And God is saying they're unified. They're too unified, in fact. So here's the conclusion. God confuses the language. He makes sure that they cannot understand each other's speech, and then he disperses them. Now, God is intentional. Every detail matters. Every decision he makes matters. So what is the significance of confusing the language? There are plenty of ways. God could have gave people, appeared to them in dreams and people just ran off. He could have done anything. Is God really concerned about them having one language? He's God. It's not like, oh, they all got the same language, so watch out, guys. It's like, no. There's something else that he's thinking about. What is the significance of changing the language? Why use that instead of all the other things that were possible to a God who has infinite possibilities? You have to always remember, when God says and does things, he has infinite ways he could have chosen to do it. So why do it this way? Why did you say this? You're intentional, God. We get that. So what is your intentionality behind changing the language? I mean, his first words in this scene mention that people have one language. They are uniquely unified because they can understand each other. And when you understand each other, you can do great things. So God confuses the language. Why? Well, we know already that it's always been God's design for there to be unity around words, his word, right? We know that. In Genesis 2 and 3, God spoke to Adam and Adam spoke to God. We get no indication that they couldn't understand each other. Satan could speak and be understood by Adam and Eve. Eve has a conversation with Satan. So there apparently was one language then. In the judgment at the garden, God spoke to Adam, to Eve, and the devil, and he was understood by all of them. There's no reason to believe that he had a different language for each situation. There was one language. So why is God acknowledging that now? Humanity was always supposed to be unified by the word of God. But in Genesis 11, the unity is not centered on obedience to God's word, but on disobedience. So the manner in which humanity is united to sin against God is the manner in which humanity will be judged by God. I'm taking your words. I'm changing your words. Words play a significant role even in the New Testament. Remember when Jesus said this in Matthew 12? I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. This is Matthew 12, 36 and 37. People will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Wait a minute. 
really? By your words, you'll be justified or condemned? We're going to give an account for every careless word? There's more to be said about that another time. By your words, you are united in disobeying God's word. So God will create disunity by confusing your words. That's a natural response. But there's a deeper reason why he confused the language. When I say God is intentional, if that were on a website and you click it, there'd be a drop-down menu. There are particular things that we mean when we say that. One, I said already, God is intentional. Every detail matters. Every detail matters. There's another drop-down menu in why God is intentional. In every scene that we see in the Bible, up until the resurrection, God always has redemption in his mind. Always has redemption. Whatever you read from Genesis 3 to Acts 1, God has redemption in his mind, and everything he is doing is setting up the redemption. Do not forget that. Don't think because it's a distant, I don't know the people, I can't even pronounce the, the, these names. Everything, genealogies, a bunch of names that you skip when you're going through the Bible. You skip that, that Matthew 3, you just skip it. And you just get not realizing that all those names are there to prove from God's perspective that what I said thousands of years ago, generations ago, I made happen, and here is the proof of it. Here are the people that have been a part of that plan that I said a long time ago. Those genealogies, while they may not make good sermons, they prove that God keeps his promises. In every scene that we see up into Acts 1, God has redemption in mind. And everything we see from Acts 2 to Revelation 22, God has his return in mind. Do not read your Bible and not remember that everything you're reading, God has redemption in mind. And redemption, biblically speaking, always has to do with reversal. God is going to reverse what happened. God wanted disunity in the words that caused the rebellion until he brought unity in the word of his redemption. So how does God do that? Why is he confusing the language? How does he reverse this? Well, first it starts in the name of the son. Beginning in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, credible theologians are accurate when they will tell you that the language of the Word, which is the Logos, is used because in a Greco-Roman society, logos 
would have been how that culture would have understood what you meant by that. It was a way that was a name that was appropriated by Jesus so that the surrounding culture would identify, oh, okay, the Logos. That's Greek, though, isn't it? Yeah, but it's talking about this Jewish guy, Jesus. That would be true. God uses the language and the stories and the narratives and the names of the surrounding culture to show them what you thought this meant, it actually meant this. But this name is also intentional. It says, Jesus, the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is the word. Notice at Babel, God comes down and confuses the words. In the gospel, God comes down and becomes the word. And when he comes, he brings a new word, a new language. Everything that Jesus is doing is all connected back from names, identifications, places, statements, the way that I die, the way that I rise. God is saying all of it is a part of what's happening. He comes down to bring unity under a new word. And you see this significantly in Acts chapter 2. Here's what happens in Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling, now there were dwelling in, in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. All right, so, so there's people from every nation under heaven. And the Holy Spirit comes to the disciples, the apostles, and has them speak in tongues. Verse 5, now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this, at this sound, the multitude came to come together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Alamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome and Asia, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So here is the scene of redemption, of Babel. So here's the scene. They're sitting in a house. They're just chilling. They hear a loud sound like a rushing wind. 
they physically see what looks like tongues that are on fire rest on each of them. This is just the apostles, just the people that are in the house. So they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they start speaking in other tongues. There's a loud sound in Jerusalem that makes all these people come out. And did you hear that? Yeah, what is that? What was that sound? And then here they see the apostles coming. They know that they're Galileans. The reason why they say, aren't these Galileans? Because we know what they talk like. We know what they sound like. We know how they communicate. So they're watching these dudes come out, and they're speaking in the language of every nation that's there. And they're like, wait a minute. There's no way that these dudes who speak, Galileans aren't really like sharp people. It's not like, oh, that makes sense. Them people speak five or six languages anyway. These are typically poor people. Many of them probably don't even speak Hebrew. They speak more Greek. And they're listening like, wait a minute. How are we hearing all of them speak our languages? And they're talking about the works that God has done. Each rebellion, God is redeeming. Last week, we looked at the rebellion in Genesis 3 to see God redeeming it. Here, God is redeeming the rebellion in Genesis 11. There, he confused the language and divides the nation because of the words of men. In Acts 2, he uses language to unify nations under the word of God. All of a sudden, you guys can speak and you're talking about how great God is? What does this mean? The opposite of confusion is understanding. You're rarely ever confused by something you understand. If you're confused, I don't understand what you mean. I don't understand what you're getting at. So in Genesis 11, they're confused. They went from, hey, man, how you doing? It's like, what did you say? And then here, they're like, wait a minute. I used to hear you tell her, and now it's like, the Lord is mighty and the Lord is worthy. But I don't understand Galilean, but I understand what you're saying because you're speaking my language. And everyone that's there that speaks a different language is like, what is happening? There's intentionality for God to name all of these different people from different regions that speak different languages are all losing their minds because they understand and when there's understanding there's unity you can be on the same page but what's the unity of this passage the mighty works of God God is redeeming every rebellion but in this one I took your words, now I'm going to redeem you by the word of God. I took your languages, now I'm going to show you that I'm the Lord of your languages. 
and that I should be proclaimed in every language. The intentionality of naming all the names is present. But this is not the game changer that I spoke of. This is incredible. This is incredible. God is reversing all the judgments he did. Reversing what he did at Babel right here. It's being, the world is being unified now by the word of God. This is why we talk about the Bible. We call it our word, the word. But this isn't a game changer that I was talking about. There's something else that God did that set in motion spiritual warfare as we know it. There's a reason why it was Israel against the world. Why he said in John 18, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. If they revile you, paraphrasing, if they mock you, if they laugh at your faith, remember they did that to me first. How is it Christians against the world? I don't mean like in a political sense, but in a spiritual sense, in a supernatural sense, how is it that we now are not wrestling with flesh and blood? What did God do in Babel to change all of this? Acts 2 has supernatural significance, no question. It would have been incredible. I'm impressed. Well, there's an app that my friend told me about called the Translator app. Now, I don't really need it because I'm always around people who speak my language. But I've used it before. It's a, it's a crazy app. I just talk into it, and then I, give it, I play it back in your language, and it speaks perfectly to you. And then you can talk into it, and then I can listen, and we can just have a conversation. Technology of getting the word out is supernatural. We had a couple here who were missionaries that worked for Wycliffe Translation. I just got an email from them the day of translated the Bible in a few languages they thought they would never be able to. But they're getting Bibles, the word, all over the world so that people can also exclaim the mighty works of God in their own language. He's redeeming what happened in Babel. This is a supernatural reality. But this is not what I was talking about. So what did God do in Babel to shake everything up? I can tell you this. God goes on the offensive. God says, all right, I've had enough. I've had enough. You thought that in the flood. Like, no. This is now God specifically talking to humanity. He said, I've had enough. So what did he do? Let's look at Genesis again, Genesis 11. I'll read this whole thing again. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, 
Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city in the tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord had said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing they, that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse the language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth. So there were two things I said that God did. The first was he confused the language. The second was that he dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So what does that mean? That statement changed everything. It changed everything. When God said he changed the language, and then it said, from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. He did this. They didn't go anywhere. He made them go. So what does it mean that he dispersed them over the face of all the earth? And how did that set in motion everything? Let me explain what happened next week. Next week. It's an amazing reality. Next week. We just needed to understand this so that we could understand what it means that he dispersed them over the face of all the earth. When you read that, you think, okay, he just sent them every other places. That's not what he did. He did something way more serious than that. And next week, We'll hear about it. <laughs> Just in case. Just in case. We'll talk about that next week because I need time to devote significantly to that. Because it changes everything. It changes everything. I will say this. Notice that in the Bible, Genesis 1 through 11 is sort of this story about the world. But then beginning in verse chapter 12, it's about Abraham. Why does all of a sudden it go from the whole world to one guy and his family? Why does it do that? Because God dispersed people all over the earth. And we'll find out why next week. Oh, the deep, deep Jesus. Let's pray. 
Lord, we often read your word and we see words and we just think, oh, okay. We don't know the significance of the word, which we're seeing there's much significance to your word. You dispersed, and that action was so significant that the whole tone of the Bible changes. We're now focused, and we, we talked about the whole world and all the stuff that was happening in the world. And that even though at times you isolated different individuals, but it was largely like watching a huge scene of millions of people interact. Babel is tons of people all in one place in Genesis 11. But then in Genesis 12, it becomes one guy that you take out of, out of all those nations. And the rest of the Bible hinges on him, his faith, and his descendants. Why? Well, Lord, you dispersing humanity over the face of the earth is a significant reality. Lord, I pray as we, Lord willing, get a chance to look into that deeply next week. I pray that it would give many of us, if not all of us, a deeper understanding that it just starts to make sense. Now it makes sense. Now this story makes sense. This theme makes sense. May that be what we get from this for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We do have a few questions uh, that have come Can somebody in. Somebody give me a water. Thank you. And um, I will say, if you don't see any water in the refrigerator, go to the Welcome Center and, and get it from there. Um, but uh, we have a few questions that have come in, some of which you may be answering those questions next week. But um, <clears throat> we'll start with the ones that don't seem to lean in that direction first. Um, after God confused their language, um, it is then called Babel. Is this because, is this called Babel because after they could no longer speak the same language, it may have seemed like everyone was babbling? Well, if you ask, oh, somebody drank from this, brother. That's a little bit down. I can't do that. I appreciate it, but I can't. Huh? Nah. Sometimes my elbows are ashy. No, sir. Thank you, though. Thank you, bro. No. You know, it's funny. When I was a kid, we'd drop stuff and be like, hey, God made dirt. Don't, don't hurt. Put it in your mouth. Make it work. But we never drank after each other. It was like, nah, I'm not, I ain't drinking after you. We'd drop a piece of candy. I'd drop a now later where ants were. I'd wipe that bad boy off, and I'd eat that candy. But drinking after somebody was like, nah, man. We used to make dudes like pour it, like, ah, right, you got to pour it like this. Or they'd be like, hey, can I get a sip? And be like, man, ah, right, you drink it first and pour it in, though. So i just been like that as a kid. So no offense. If that was your bottle, it's not personal. Thank you, Michael. Let me inspect the gadget this joint. Make sure. Make sure uh, if, you, if you ask salt and pepper, they would say that. I heard you come from Babylon because you're a Babylon MC. So I know some of y'all don't know who that is. It's an 80s girls rap group, Salt and Pepper. Only a few people know who that is in this room. And I thank God for y'all. Thank God for the. 
Um, I think people have said that. I think the real reason that it's called Babel is because Babel does become Babylon. And Babylon becomes a significant narrative in the Bible, starting with Nebuchadnezzar and used as imagery in Revelation. Babylon becomes, that comes with where Babel comes from. And actually, the place where Babel is, they would say that that's where Babylon was, where Nebuchadnezzar was in Daniel chapter 4. So there's a lot of people that I think Babel becomes more than just where they're babbling to each other. That's, yeah, maybe in the natural sense that could have happened. But God, because God dispersed them, he dispersed them by everyone who understood each other. So even in him bringing disunity, he still kept unity around because the people at least understood each other. But it's more that Babylon becomes a major theme in the Bible of evil. And we'll see why a little bit later. Or actually next week you'll start to see why Babylon is such a big deal, why Babel is such a big deal. You'll see what happens. So. All right. Uh, since Satan was not destroyed in the flood, where did he go? Does Satan and his angels dwell in a spiritual place, or do, do they dwell in people? Well, here's what's interesting about the Bible, right? It's not until you get to the New Testament where everything is put under one evil supernatural being, Satan. You might, people think, oh, the Job, Satan and Job and Satan and the God, they're not even the same thing because Satan just means adversary, the Satan. In the Hebrew, in the original languages, there's a definite article, the Satan. So it's not a formal name until the New Testament. And in the New Testament, it's one supernatural being. So in the Old Testament, you see like the God of this, Marduk and Baal and Asherah, and you see all these different, Dagon, and you see the worship of all these gods. So it could be that, in the, I mean, Satan was just around, right? The worship of other gods, but I can't finish that statement. So I'll just say Satan was around, uh, you know, there's always, you know, there's, there's not a lot of demonic possession as we understand it in the Old Testament. There's more worship of other gods and idols and sac doing things to please these gods. It's not the same. You get some of it, but it's not the same thing in the New Testament. So Satan is just, you know, whatever he thinks God's activity is, is what he's going to try to try to thwart. Whatever he thinks God's activity is. And so he's around. The cosmic powers of darkness that are around. Uh, do they have to always be in people? I don't think so. But remember, Satan is not a, 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 he's not a demon. Demons are something different. Demons, for the most part, have to reside, they have to dwell in something. That's part of their judgment from God. So that's a little, Satan's a little bit different. But we'll, next week when I say, when I explain something, you'll see that question will probably make a lot more sense. Actually, a lot of things are going to make a lot more sense. All right. Um, is, is, is there any evidence of where the Tower of Babel actually was? So on YouTube, there's a, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Honestly, I, I'm sure that there are, um, there are archaeologists out there who work hard. Uh, if you want some entertainment, just type in the Tower of Babel, and you'll be like, you'll see, like, even from the History Channel, the Tower of Babel found question mark, and you watch the 50-minute video, and you know, at the end it says, well, we're not exactly sure if this is where it is. So, so I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, for what, if you listen to them tell that they found the God of Eden, they found this. The only thing they can't find is Jesus' bones. 
And so I, I just think, I rap too, you know, I rap a little bit. So, so I, I just, I don't, I don't know if there's legitimate, but I think there are some people that would say they think, because here's the thing, Mesopotamia is a region, right? The region of the world, what we call the Middle East, it's all there. It's not like different parts of the world, like everything resides there. All the mountains in the Bible, it's all Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, all these, all the, you know, Mount Sinai, they're all, in a, these are real locations. The challenge is, is that names change from the Old Testament to the New. So like you don't know, like you don't, you don't think like, oh, Caesarea and Philippi in the New Testament is actually this location in the Old Testament. And when you don't know that, you miss the significance of why did Jesus go there? What's the point of going over there? Why did he go to Gennesaret? Like who, what's over there? It's a Gentile region. Oh, but what was that? What did that mean in the Old Testament? What was that place in the Old Testament? And what is he accomplishing by going there? That's where it gets different. But some of that stuff I can hit after next week's Lord willing. Lord willing, after uh, next Sunday sermon, I can say a lot of stuff that's like, ah, because it's, it's, it's just like, wow, what God did, and then the, the fallout of that is like, okay, now a lot of this makes sense. Um, why did God need to come down to earth to see what the people were doing? Couldn't he see it from heaven? Yeah, 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 sure. No, his sight is a little bit better when he sees it in person. No, he can't. <laughs> like, so, like, this is the thing you have to understand, right? Remember what God is writing this for, right? God is using language to rival the other uh, creation narratives at other religions. Like, like, for the Jews, whatever they heard from the Egyptians, God is rivaling that. So when he's using that kind of language, it's more about showing God's intimate connection with humanity more than him needing to come down and, like, Adam, where are you, Adam? Like, when I was with my boys, I'd be like, ah, ah, you know, and they'd laugh and have fun, and I'd act like, where's such and such? Where's Mateo? They'd be hearing him laughing, snickering. I don't know where he is, even though he's right by my foot, right? There's a sense where what that does is that builds community, right? That builds fun. It's like, ah, I got him, pick him up, hug him, kiss All that stuff is a part of it. God does the same thing in many ways. That language is not necessarily God had to come down, but, but I think it communicates, one, God's closest with humanity, but then two, what it's communicating is how seriously God takes the affairs of humanity. So don't, don't forget that God didn't just come down at Babel, God came down and lived here for decades, so he takes that serious. So it's not that he doesn't come, he needs to come down, but when he comes down, it's like, this is serious. Let's go ahead and look at this. Like, like, like you know, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Let's go down there and see what's really going on, you know? So it's kind of interesting that he does that. But it's not, I don't think it's a need type of thing, though. It's not a God needs to do it. Of course he can see these things. But I think he, he relates to humanity based on how we understand the world. If everything where God is up there and never does, it would be hard to connect with him. But when you say, like, he comes down, he does this, he does that, we can relate to that. You know, when it uses language, they call it anthropomorphisms, where you... The, the, the Lord's love is like a mother hen. It's like, the Lord ain't no mother hen. I'd be the biggest bird ever. Like, <laughs> but it uses language that we can identify with so that we connect with God more because he knows I need to talk in ways that they connect with the way they see the world. You know, He knows what's really going on. But sometimes, often he'll talk to us in the way that we see things. And sometimes we'll talk to it from his vantage point. All right. Um, so um, this question is, uh, 
Would the confusion of the languages also make Satan's work harder? Um, basically keeping people from being able to collaborate. No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Actually, man. So actually, so I'll, uh, so God confusing the languages actually gave Satan an advantage. I think it was what God was doing. It was way more serious than just confusing the language. I think it actually gave Satan more advantage. These supernatural beings, these intelligent beings, they know what they can learn to speak to other languages. They, they can learn those languages quickly. They're supernatural beings. God was actually. Uh, God was actually saying, OK, let's go to war. Let's go to war. You want a war? OK, let's go to war. Let's see what you do versus. So actually, I think the languages were God saying, I'm giving you the advantage here. I'm going to confuse the language to give you the advantage. Let's go to war. You want a war? Let's go to war. Right. So we'll see why next week. It's not. Yeah, you'll see next week. God is, God is like, all right, let's get it. Oh, I can't wait to tell you all this. Then it's like, oh, I can say a bunch of stuff once I say this. All right, you, uh, here you go. The language of being dispersed, does this insinuate ownership of land? Did he teach, a, did he, I'm sorry, excuse me. Yeah, does the languages being dispersed, the people being dispersed, excuse me, um, does this insinuate ownership of land? Well, I mean, if you think about on one level, what was the purpose, right? Be fruitful and multiply the earth, fill the earth, right? So there was an inherent in that statement is a sense where go into all the world and, you know, and be image bearers in all the world. And so in that sense, um, I think God's plan has always been for humanity to go into the land and to establish you know, ownership of it. That's what the whole point of in Genesis, like one, when he tells Adam, exercise dominion, right? And authority. So there's a sense where, yeah, I'm creating you to, to you're, this is basically the land I'm giving you to own. I'm, I'm creating you for that purpose. So in that sense, that's always been part of God's intention is to have that reality show up. That's a good question. Is the baptism of the Holy Spirit for every believer and what is its significance? A little bit of a left field question for this. <laughs> well, I, I think you referenced Acts 2. Yeah. So I, think no, I can see why they asked that. So it depends on what that person means by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So um, if, I, if, I, if, if I, again, I don't know what that person means, right? There are people who mean different things. So if you mean by baptism of the Holy Spirit, that there's a, def a second definitive work that's necessary for salvation. Some people teach that. That's not true at all. That's not true at all. The Bible does not teach that. People will use, like, well, they laid hands on these people, and then they spoke in tongues, right? They'll use that. But you have to understand, like, the, the context of all of that. Like, 
God is, if you're trying to establish something new, right? If you're trying to prove that something new is happening, how do you do that? You can't do it without doing something new, right? So like prime example, every year there's a new car and no one needs a new car. <laughs> there's, but in order to bait you, there's at least one feature that's new, right? It looks the same, drives the same, but look, you can, you know, it'll park by yourself, letting go automatically. It's like, I'm not trusting that, you know? Because you don't, I mean, it's not gonna pay for your insurance if you hit the car, right? So there's a new feature that's always something. In order to demonstrate a new covenant, right? Because everyone didn't see Jesus die on the cross, rise from the dead, and ascend into heaven. How do you prove that the working of God is new? And how do you prove that people who were historically not allowed to really be a part of the people of God unless they converted into the Judaism mindset? How do you prove that those people are now genuine Christians? Like, this is a new covenant. Will you do something new? Well, how do you do that? These people can speak in the same language that you heard the apostles speak in in Acts chapter 2. The people that were with God are speaking it. They have this ability. So all of a sudden now, this becomes one of the gifts that God allows to happen to people. So you see this in like Acts 10. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. Peter goes to his house, and then before P Peter even finishes preaching the gospel, I mean, Peter's like, yeah, man, so Jesus came, and he, um, you know, when he went to, you know, a couple months ago, he went to the cross, and all of a sudden, they just, the spirit falls on them, but how do they know that the spirit falls on them? Does that mean they watch the literal spirit fall on them? No, they just start speaking in tongues and praising God, and so it becomes proof, evidence that a new covenant is happening. But then you see, but you see like Acts 16, Lydia, who it says God opened up her heart to believe, she doesn't speak in tongues. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer doesn't speak in tongues. His family gets baptized, and then he puts Paul and Barnabas back in jail. And they get released the next day, right? So there's a sense of this baptism of the Spirit for some people means a level of spirituality that other people don't get. And that's not true biblically. That's not true. Jesus doesn't have hierarchies, right? When he says stuff like there's no Jew no Greek, no, no slave, no freedom. In Christ, we're all the same, but we do have different gifts and different things. That's to strengthen the body, not to compete with it, right? So I think when you talk about baptism of the spirit, people tend to think that means I've given some semblance of spirituality. And let me tell you why even that is not maturity, biblical maturity. If you look at the book of Corinthians, right? Corinthians are two books that we have. Two of the longest books that we have are Corinthians. Paul wrote four of them. Two of them we have. We have his second and fourth. We call them first and second Corinthians. First Corinthians, from chapter one, verses four through nine, Paul says essentially that I know that you all are believers. The spirit is at work. Every manifestation of the spirit is at work in you. So I know that you all are Genuine believers. From 1 Corinthians 1.10 to the end of chapter 15, which would be largely 93% of the book, he corrects them for gross immaturity. And, in the, and, and towards the end of that, for a total misuse of the gifts of the Spirit. They were competing with each other. Like some people were saying, oh, I speak in tongues, so I'm better than you. Well, I prophesy. Well, I got a word of... And Paul's was point was like, look, that's a gift that comes from the Lord. If a person does that, that's a gift. It's not a superpower, right? right. right. 
you don't, it's not like, listen, if people had the gift of healing, they would be millionaires. Be like, hey, are you ready? Yeah, let me just finish this coffee real quick and then go ahead and send them in. And they just, no, no, no. When, what Paul is saying is, this isn't your superpower, but when this gift does manifest, it's from the Lord. Right? You don't compete against it. They were grossly immature, but they had all the gifts of the Spirit. They were the most charismatic church in the Bible, and they were also the most immature church. So supernatural gifts, all that stuff, that doesn't mean maturity at all. I know people that have never done that, and they're godly folks. And the people that be all like, I'm do, I do this and do that, you immature. You know, so I, that stuff is just, it's just backwards, right? Because we like sensationalism. That's the culture we live in. So people will define your maturity or your, based on some gift that God gave. I don't, it's the same way like people who are reformed who believe in the doctrine of election can be arrogant towards people who don't believe that. And it's like, fam, if you really believe that you were chosen, then you, you wouldn't, you would know that they, that you would be humble because there was nothing you did to receive it, right? But you talk like, look, these people rebelling against God. Well, so were you until God saved you according to the theology. So what are you arrogant for? You should be the most humble because you received something that you didn't do anything to earn, right? I, it's, it's just, we just hustling backwards is what we used to call it in the streets. I just don't get it. So, so I think baptism of the spirit is, is not a term that the Bible uses to describe a level of superiority or maturity, what Paul says is to be filled with the Spirit. And being filled means the Spirit's already in you, right? And being filled with the Spirit is really just having a, a stronger sense, a stronger sense of commitment, a stronger sense of urgency, a stronger sense of reading and praying. It's not like a holy zap that he's saying have. It's like, no, this is we just live in the real world, real time. Right real struggles, you know, the spirit is in you, but that gives you the desire and the ability to obey. When you manifest certain things, praise God, the Lord did that in that moment. Right. But is it like you're somebody special because of that? Nah. I mean, it, think, man. I just, we all know, we, I've, I've been to places where all this stuff is happening, and then you find out the pastor's having an affair with somebody else. Like, hey, get out of here, man. That stuff is not real. It's it's, it, it, but God will still, here's the scary part. Right. God will give you the gifts of the spirit even if you yourself will be disqualified when you stand before him. God will allow you to, listen, Matthew 23, scariest passage in the Bible to me because I'm a teacher. God said this in Matthew 23. He said to the crowd and his disciples in front of the Pharisees, this is what he said. The Pharisees sit on Moses' seat so observe what they tell you, but don't imitate what they do. Wow. Now think about that statement. He was arguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes the whole time, pushing back against them, calling them false, all of this. You guys are, you, you say one thing, but then size you another, all of that, right? Then he says, right before he dies, hey, they sit on Moses' seat. That's a significant statement, meaning they carry on the burden of instruction from God the way Moses did. So listen to them, but don't imitate them. What does that mean? That God will still use their knowledge of the law to instruct others, but when they stand before him, they're going to be judged by the instruction they gave, and they're not going to make it. So I don't, I'm not, there's nothing to boast in, except just in Christ. <laughs> this is why Paul said, look, I just want to boast in Christ. I'm not boasting in none of this stuff. I renounce it. I renounce. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a 
born on the eighth day, circumcised, uh, according to the law, blameless. I, he said, I'll renounce all of that for the sake of Christ, because that stuff doesn't matter. So I, I just think we live in a world where that stuff matters to people again. And it's just like God is not impressed because he gave you the gift to use it. He's not impressed by it. It's not like, oh. Like, while I'm grateful that some like my teaching and God does give me insights, he's not up there like, dad, Curtis killing it down there. <laughs> it's, like, it's just like, listen, when he took, God told Nebuchadnezzar, hey, bro, since you think you did all of this, I'm going to judge you. But he didn't say, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. You could have done that. I'm going to have some other people. He said, no, nah, I'm going to take your rational ability to think like a human being. So for the next seven years, you are going to eat grass. Your hair is going to grow, all this stuff, right? For seven years, the most powerful man in the world, God said, you can't even think like a human being. You know what that means? You and I can't even think like a rational human being if the Lord doesn't allow us. So there's nothing to boast in. The Lord is like, hey, the fact that we understand some things, we believe some things, that we're, praise God for that. He, that's why in Revelation 4, the 24 elders, they cast the crowns off. Because what are you going to say? Well, Lord, look what I did. That's why in Matthew 7, they say, hey, Lord, didn't we do all these mighty works in your name? Say, like, huh? You, like, I needed you to do those mighty works in my name. He didn't need us to do that. He doesn't need us. Luke 17, 10. When you have done all that you were commanded to do, say, I am an unworthy servant, only doing what was my duty. That's maturity. That's maturity. If you baptize in the spirit, cool. If you not, that's maturity. That's what we're after. I just want to be an unworthy servant doing what was my duty. And whatever he rewards me for, thank you, Lord. Whatever he takes away, all right, I trust you, Lord. So we have two other questions that, that are on regarding tongues. I'll ask those people to please see Pastor Kurt afterwards. But um, this last question is, um, could you give advice for what we should do when we don't agree with what God does. You mentioned we rebel when we don't like. Yeah. How can we not do that? So, I, I mean, I, for me, I think it's really, it's really actually, it's simple in phraseology. The hard part is to continue to do it. But I think God, so I would say this, complaining about God is a sin. Complaining to God is a psalm. And you look at the, I mean, Psalms to me, to me, Psalms are a lot of complaints about God. They're David and Asaph and a few other people struggling with God. And you know what? God was like, I want that included in my word. Because he understands Psalm 103, 10 through 14, top five favorite passages of scripture for me. It says he remembers how we are formed, that we are only dust. The Lord is not struggling. He's not up there like, man, who do they think they are talking about? When John the Baptist, the dude who baptized Jesus, sent his, apostles, his disciples to say, are you really the Messiah or not? Jesus said, blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. And then told the crowd that that dude who y'all just heard his disciples question if I'm the Messiah, he's the greatest born of all women, right? When we're struggling with God, I think somehow we think like the way we, our relationship with God is hinged on our resistance to sin. And our relationship with God is hinged on his commitment to us. 
it's not about sin management. It's like you got to be honest sometimes with the Lord. And I think what Psalms provide us is some, like read Psalms in the 80s. Them Psalms don't end with, but you, oh God. They end with death. Is, you left me with nothing but death and no friends. <laughs> Selah. Psalm 83, you know, the Lord isn't sitting there like, man, who these people think they are? He's like, nah, listen, they're hurting. They're hurt right now. Like, he understands suffering. He understands. He knows what we don't know, and he knows that we're struggling. I think when you're struggling or disappointed in God, I think the, the goal isn't to try to fix yourself or dis. The goal is just be honest with him. There are times I'm like, Lord, over the last three years, with all the COVID stuff and just even trying to get people back in church and then get feeling like I was blamed by others for certain things that I feel like I ain't do. There were times I was just like, man, Lord, I'm really getting tired of this. Like I'm tired of, and I know you don't need me. I'm talking, this is a real, this is how I talk to the Lord. I know you don't need me. I know that you don't need me to lead this church and you can put somebody here better than me, but I pray that you do that. I said, replace me, Lord, because I'm kind of getting tired of this. I'm tired of feeling like everything I do, every decision I make is a problem. So I was talking like that to the Lord. I'm just tired of it. I feel like you, you, you know, I was just honest with him. <clears throat> and I think the Lord met me in those times. Because there were times I could be honest with some of y'all. There were times I stood up here and said stuff. I remember telling y'all in December of 2020 that this is the loneliest season for ministry in my life. Pastors don't say that to their church. They don't want people to know that. We're scared to tell people that because people will judge you. I could care less if I'm judged by y'all. In that sense, only because I'm trying to be faithful. And the Lord knows that. So it's like, listen, and I was being real because it's real. Sometimes the Lord just does not do things that we think are good things. And I just got to be honest with him. I got to be honest. There are things that I feel like, Dad, Lord, you, I mean, why? Or like there are times I'm, I'm struggling with stuff that he allows to happen in you all's lives because I love you. And I'm like, man, wow, Lord, this is crazy right now. I'll get a text, and I got to be strong for people, but I'm struggling too. I'm trying to tell y'all, don't be angry at the Lord, but I'm angry at the Lord too. Like, dang, Lord, these people been praying. They trying to fight. Like, this is a lot for them. But, I know, but, but I'm honest. But then I get back to, but Lord, I know who you are. You don't have anything to prove to me. But I want to be, so be honest with God. Like, don't feel like you got to be like, oh, I got to approach him on some old Lord. You, man, if you don't think he's good, tell him. Be honest. Be honest. You know, I, I, he can handle that. And then, and then when, you, when you do that, it allows you to just be vulnerable and be transparent with him in a way that some of us think we got to be prim and proper with him. Like, be, remember Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee walked in all chilly. Yeah, you know. Lord, I'm glad I'm not like him. I fast and do this. Some of us approach God like that, but the tax collector was like, it said, man, he was beating his chest. He couldn't even look up. It was like, Father, forgive me. Man, just humble yourself and just say, Lord, here I am. Now, that was in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, here's, here's how God says it. 1 Peter 5, 6. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, right? And he may exalt you in due time, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's intentional. Now, people who think anxiety is sinful, because <laughs> what other sins does God say cast on me? He doesn't say cast your anger, your lust, your lying, your grief. But he says anxieties, cast them on me because I care for you. I care for you. So I think sometimes we just don't, we think God's care is connected solely to our circumstances. And that's where we have to be honest and be like, Lord, I'm just, I'm mad for real. 
I thought I was going to get this promotion and I didn't. I thought I was going to be married by now and I'm not. I thought we were going to have a child by now. We don't. I thought my kids were going to grow up and honor the Lord. They don't. I thought this was going to happen. I thought your word said instruct them in the way of the Lord. There's so many things that happen. I thought I'd be more mature right now. I'm not. Tell the Lord that. Be honest with him. And then also, the Lord works through his people. Try to find somebody that will encourage you in the Lord. Our relationship with the Lord is not vertical only. It's vertical and horizontal. He works through his people. That's why he told Paul, why are you persecuting me? Lord, you've been dead for a couple of months. You, you, you rose a couple of months ago. What you mean I'm persecuting you? He said, no, when you persecute the people, you persecute me. God works through his people. So I think go to the Lord, be honest, and then have somebody that you know that can encourage you. Find a Barnabas, a son of encouragement in your life that you think can help you, and just do that. But be honest. I think the Lord is all right when we're offended at him because it's, it's real. Now, I don't think you should stay offended at the Lord because it's like, because if you do that, you're forgetting some things, right? Like, what, do, what you do have, like, how did you get that? Well, I worked hard for it. Well, how did you have, who kept you, who taught you how to think so that you could, who, who constructed your, everything we have is from the Lord, right? So you got to be, you know, you don't want to be walking around offended all the time, but I think we got to be honest when we are hurt and just tell them and then tell someone else that can help you. That's where I would start. And I think if there's a season where it just, it, it hurts a lot, then tell that to the Lord a lot. Be honest. That me and the Lord have had some, I've, what do you say, Jacob wrestled with God, right? That was physical. I've wrestled with God emotionally. Like I've said, man, Lord, you tripping, bro? But like, man, this is so wild. Like you, you know, like nobody, you know, I, I've just, I've been there. And so I think what they call dark nights of the soul. I think we all will have circumstances where we just got to be honest with God and not be ashamed to do that. He's okay with that. So that's it. All right. Let's now wrestle with this. Let's wrestle with the fact that, that, that God has redeemed us, that he's redeemed everything. And us, it's interesting that he redeemed us because everything that happened happened before we were alive. But we come into a world influenced by the cosmic powers of darkness. And so we've all sinned in ways that we're worthy of God's judgment. But instead, he says, look, I'm going to actually give you faith to believe in me so that the judgment that you received happened to me. And so this is what we do. This is how we live. And we're not flawless. We're just trying to be faithful. It's how we live. There's no one in Hebrews 11 that was flawless. All them people were, some of them people were wild. I remember being one time, I was like, man, Lord, why would you put some of these people in the Bible? Like, I wouldn't want my kids to be like Samson or Gideon or none of these folks. But the Lord sees something about faith that we don't see. When I see them, I think, man, this is a church that's, I would, if this church was like Corinth, there's no way I would be telling y'all, man, I know that y'all believe and I know that y'all, y'all, it would be small because I'd be busting heads every week. <laughs> I'd be busting heads every week. Hey, Mac, what was, what was that one pastor that was going up to his congregation and calling them out for what they were doing? Hey, you need to stop because I know last week you was in the bar last night. You, he was walking around saying that. I was like, he's wilding right now. He was, uh, he was acting like an Old Testament prophet. I know where you was at last night. What hotel was that? It's like, what? He's going like that? I just said, man. But that's when you, if your church was crazy, if, if this church were like Corinth, I would be like, I got to step down. This church is wild. Unless somebody else leave this joint, I'd be hitting Mike like, hey, what certification do I need to get that IT job, my brother? I'd be changing. <laughs> I'd be up there. Hey, what is this? What code is this? Linux? I'd be all that. Wait, whoa. You're like, Warren, man, what I got to say? I leave. 
No, but he sees something different. Paul saw something different even in the midst of all that immaturity. God saw something different in the midst of all that immaturity of the people in Hebrews 11. He sees faith in all the immaturity of all of us in this room. And he sees that, and he, and he loves that, and he blesses that, and he died for that. And so we do this every week despite our immaturity, despite the use of our words being united sometimes to rebel against God, despite our willingness to eat from the wrong tree, God says, I forgive you. I love you enough to take this punishment for you. Now remember that enough and remind yourself that I did that by doing this for me. So we eat this together, those of us who genuinely believe in the Lord. We eat this in honor of his body that was broken for us. Let's eat. And we drink this in honor of his blood that was shed for us. Let's drink. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you have redeemed everything. And as we're learning in this series, these are not just disconnected stories in the Old Testament. These are the foundation of why you came to die on the cross, to overthrow the works of the devil first and to grant us salvation. So, Father, I just pray that you would bless, bless our Bless our efforts, bless our desire. Lord, as you are doing this already in this church, Lord, but I want to pray this again and ask that you would give us an endless fascination with you. Help us to love your word. Lord, I pray that you would allow me to be able to explain next week what it, what it is that you did by dispersing to make even further connection to all the things, stuff that we haven't talked about yet. Things that Jesus said that we haven't even discussed yet because we haven't gotten to this point. But Lord, I believe you're bringing us to this point, and I pray that you would let that happen. And lastly, Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who does not believe in you. They may be intrigued by what they're hearing. They may have been forced to come here this morning. Whatever the reason is, Lord, I thank you that you brought them here. You were intentional in bringing them here. And I pray that, that, that something was said or will be said by someone else that will help them come closer to you. If there's anyone here, Lord, that needs to put their faith in you today, then, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts to receive the truth of the gospel, that you came, you lived perfectly, you obeyed perfectly, you died brutally, and you rose victoriously. And you said, if anyone believes in me, their sins are forgiven. I pray that you would help anyone in here who doesn't think that their sins need to be forgiven to see that that's not true. For even in the natural law, we know that you can't commit a crime without some kind of punishment. We understand that just in, our, in the law of our own courts, that our crimes have consequences. They have actions. Lord, our sins have consequences. And where, mo where no judge will exonerate us based on someone else taking credit for our crime, you exonerate us by Jesus taking responsibility for our sin. So I pray that you would help anyone believe that. And for those of us that do, I pray that you would help us continue to be grateful for that. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, don't forget next Saturday, for those of you that want to take advantage of this, there is a church-sponsored date night. So you can drop your kids off at 3 p.m. And you have until 7 p.m. Just to remind you that that is for you to spend time together, together, because you can, if you say I'm going to get my net, you can do that while your one of your spouse watches the kids. 
This is for you to spend time together that we're giving up, those of us who are serving our, our time, to hang with your kids. So please take advantage of it if you want to, but you have to register. I need to know by 5 p.m. Friday how many people are coming. If you do not register by then and you show up Saturday, your kids will be going with you. Because